Hello, and welcome back to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 12, A Voice from the Dead. For the Victorians, one of the most disturbing and fascinating powers of the phonograph was its capacity to preserve a voice beyond the death of the speaker. Jonathan Stern in The Audible Past suggests that the possibility of preserving the voice after death was a defining figure of the early phonographic discourse. In a previous episode, with reference to Stern, we talked about how the idea of preserving sound had important connections to the treatment of the corpse in Victorian embalming practices. I said a few words in episode 4 about the connections between technology and spiritualism. I remember mentioning that I was going to sooner or later come back to these themes, and well, here we are. The next few episodes are going to focus on matters of life and death, and quite frankly, what else is there really worth talking about? What I want to think about specifically is how the ideas and practices of British spiritualism related to and informed what was thought about the recorded voices of the dead. Spiritualism itself is a broader term than it might seem at first. Our starting point will be Janet Oppenheim's observation, in her book The Other World, that the common point of reference among the many branches of spiritualism was a belief that the spirits of the dead could and did communicate with the living. Within that mental framework, listening to the recorded voice of the dead became a communion with the departed. The recorded voice was not only a preserved aspect of the body, it was also a preserved aspect of the soul, stored within a surrogate wax cylindric body. Much earlier in the century, in 1842, the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson published the following poem. Break, break, break on thy cold grey stones, O sea, and I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. O well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. O well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay. And the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill. But O for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, break, break at the foot of thy crags, O sea, but the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. What for Tennyson had been a nostalgic and melancholic dream, the sound of a voice that is still, had become, for the late Victorians and their phonographs, a new reality. The phonograph promised a world where sound, particularly the human voice, never truly fades into silence, for better and for worse. However, it was at the same time understood that wax recordings were ultimately quite fragile objects that deteriorated with use. Navigating such contradictory waters, Victorian writers situated the recorded voice of the dead within dichotomies of permanence and impermanence, presence and absence, and life and death. Fictional accounts, predictions of the future, and marketing copy tended to assume a perfection of the technology. However, when discussing the recorded voices of departed great men, Victorian commentators often emphasized the fragility and impermanence of the medium. Considering how often break, break, break was referenced in connection to the recorded voice after death, it says a lot that Tennyson's own phonograph recordings were not discussed in relation to his death. The same was true for William Gladstone, whose recorded voice we discussed in episode 10. Death may have been central to the idea of the recorded voice, but the recorded voice was not, and perhaps has never become, too central to our ideas and rituals of death. With that in mind, it's perhaps all the more remarkable that the recordings of the poet Robert Browning, and religious figures such as Cardinal Manning, did attract broad public attention when they were ceremonially played to selected audiences after their deaths. Apart from sad great men biting the dust, 
the 1890s also saw the beginnings of a phonographic literature, within which death became an important motif. Scholars of modernism have written a lot on the connections between phonography and death, broadly understood within the modernist canon. James Joyce's Ulysses and Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain are two works that are often referenced in such studies. But the phonographic literature of the 1880s and 1890s was not just a precursor to these later modernist explorations. It had a different perspective on the technology. Whereas the modernists, by and large, concerned themselves almost explicitly with the repetitive and mechanical playback capacities of the gramophone disc player, the Victorians were more interested in exploring the preservation of individual voices and unique utterances. One of the more prominent motifs that emerged in this literature was that of last words being recorded onto a cylinder, which would typically result in a character living on after death through their recorded voice. Over the next few episodes, we're going to ponder examples of the recorded voices of the dead functioning in both reality and fiction in the late 19th century. As ever in my story, I don't want us to simply peruse what was said and what happened. I also want us to try to understand what it all meant to people at the time. And as I referenced at the top of the episode, I feel that in order to do so, we need to understand that, at the time, literally millions of people from all corners of society in the US and Europe identified as spiritualists. Moreover, millions of non-believers were equally as involved in trying to disprove the seemingly obvious hoaxes and falsehoods being spotted as scientific evidence and truth. Celebrity mediums, such as Florence Cook and Daniel Hume, were household names and among the most famous people of the century. So, who were these mediums, and what exactly did they get up to? Well, let's consider the example I just mentioned of the Scottish medium Daniel Hume. In the hundreds of seances he conducted in his lifetime, he was famed for his ability to levitate himself in objects, communicate with the dead, and to produce knocks and rappings under seemingly any circumstances. From our perspective, it seems clear that he was a charlatan using what we'd today call magic tricks, and indeed, at the time, many believed him to be exactly that. But in that divided time, just as many others believed in everything he did and every word he said, and the more you read about these characters, you start to feel that in some way, at least some of them must have believed at least something about themselves as well. Hume's autobiography, called Incidents in My Life, for example, traces a family history of second sight and a lifetime of visions and premonitions of deaths. Throughout his career, Hume set himself apart from many other mediums by working in decently lit rooms, and also by refusing money for his seances. He would do so claiming that he was solely on a mission to demonstrate immortality, and did not seek to profit from his powers. Yet, all the while, he lived very well on gifts and favors from his many admirers and devotees, many of whom were extremely wealthy. To them, his magic tricks were nothing of the sort. Rather, they were clear proof of the hereafter, of life after death. To give one particularly famous example of his exploits, in 1867 in front of three witnesses from high society, Hume levitated out of a third-story window and floated back in through another window. Fifty years later, as the age of spiritualism was arguably waning, the spiritualist skeptic Joseph McCabe wrote of the incident, No one professes to have seen Hume carried from window to window. Hume told the three men who were present that he was going to be wafted, and he thus set up a state of very nervous expectation. Both Lord Crawford and Lord Adair said that they were warned. Then Lord Crawford says that he saw the shadow on the wall of Hume entering the room horizontally, and as the moon, by whose light he professes to have seen the shadow, was at most only three days old, his testimony is absolutely worthless. 
Lord Adair claimed only that he saw Hume in the dark, standing upright outside our window. In the dark, it was an almost moonless December night. One could not, as a matter of fact, say very positively whether Hume was outside or inside. But in any case, he acknowledges that there was a 19-inch window sill outside the window, and Hume could stand on that. Well, I say 50 years, but actually magicians today are still debating how Hume must have performed his tricks, such as the window stunt. And if you search the name Daniel Hume on Google, spelled home, H-O-M-E, you'll see that it might be too early to say that spiritualism has died a death. Or should we think of it as having survived its death? Hmm. In any case, on websites with titles like Psychic Truth and Prairie Ghost, Daniel Hume is still a hero, a man who demonstrated immortality. The window stunt was one of many levitations, if perhaps the most dramatic on record. Descriptions of most of the others seem to match up with what street magicians like David Blaine have performed on camera. And while I've never personally been blown away with the trick on the TV screen, if we are to trust the reactions captured on camera, you can see that in person such tricks can be very effective in amazing a crowd. When you consider that Hume never claimed to be doing magic and instead insisted that his powers were from the beyond, well, you can imagine the impact he would have had on impressionable minds. Hume may have been one of the most famous mediums, but there were many others working at the time as well. The popularity of his ideas exploded in the latter half of the century. According to historian Rody Hayward, between 1860 and 1880, some 20 spiritualist periodicals and over 200 spiritualist societies were established in the UK alone, and I'm sure one can find similar or even greater figures in the US. It all sounds rather macabre, these seances, informed as we are by urban legends of Ouija boards and films like Poltergeist, but it's important to understand that, while unsettling, communications with the dead in Victorian spiritualism were not usually portrayed or interpreted as threatening experiences. Rather, there were projects of discovery, love, and the proof of immortality. It was a movement of incredible optimism founded in ideas of a profound and sudden spiritual evolution of humankind. An article published in The Two Worlds, a popular spiritualist periodical, expressed these sentiments, stating, From my earliest and most unthinking days, I have always felt that the one great unfulfilled want of this world is undeniable proof that when we leave it we shall live again or rather, that we shall never cease to live. Spiritualists hope to scientifically prove more than the immortality of the individual soul. They also sought proof of the continuation of social relationships after death, particularly with regard to loved ones. The author adds, The cry of one and all has been the same. Show us our dead. Give us some sign that they still live and that we shall live with them. In addition to revealing the widely shared aims of spiritualism, the quotes I've mentioned reveal something of the methods as well. Phrases such as undeniable proof and show us our dead suggest the centrality of objective evidence to spiritualist discourse. The affirmation of spiritualist research and practices by prominent scientists such as Oliver Lodge, William Crookes, and Alfred Russell Wallace, though controversial, was not at all contradictory or ironic. Before we continue, let's listen to a 1930 recording of Arthur Conan Doyle describing his experiences with spiritualism. Now as to the more serious subject. The result of my medical education in the days of Huxley and Haeckel was to make me agnostic in matters of religion. And certainly I had no belief that we survived death. I've always, of course, kept my mind open to new ideas, 
For the day a man's mind shuts is the day of his mental death. In 1887, some curious psychic experiences came my way, and especially I was impressed by the fact of telepathy, which I proved for myself by experiments with a friend. The question then arose, if two incarnate minds could communicate, is it possible for a discarnate one to communicate with one that is still in the body? For more than 20 years I examined the evidence, and came finally to the conclusion beyond all doubt that such communication was possible. I could give hundreds of illustrations to prove my point, but I can only refer you to the literature of the subject. I took my proofs from actual personal experiments, as well as from the work of such a great man as Sir William Crookes, Myers, Dr. Russell Wallace, and others. As we can hear in his words and voice, by the end of the 19th century, spiritualism had brought together religion, science, and technology into one fluid expression. As we briefly discussed in episode 4, by the 1890s the spiritualist movement had fully appropriated scientific methodology as the measure of validity for its beliefs. But that wasn't the way it had always been. Roger Luckhurst in his book The Invention of Telepathy argues that this was a contentious development of the movement, rather than a characteristic present from the beginning. In his words, the rhetoric and conceptual language underwent transformation, changing from a predominant antagonism to science towards increasing attempts to formulate utterances inside scientific frameworks. By 1894, spiritualist publications such as The Two Worlds had firmly and consciously entrenched themselves in scientific language in their editorials and discussions. In that year, an article appearing in The Two Worlds stated, the feature of modern spiritualism which distinguishes it from the spiritualism of any former age is its scientific evidence. Spiritualists began to see their discoveries as historical developments that demanded the attention of the scientific establishment. This was especially the case for spiritualists already within the scientific community. In 1905, writing in a newly established journal entitled The Annals of Psychical Science, future Nobel Prize winning scientist Charles Richet wrote, Instead of seeming to ignore spiritism, scientists should study it. Physicians, chemists, physiologists, philosophers ought to take the trouble to know and understand the facts affirmed by spiritists. These truths, when they are better understood, will profoundly modify the puny notions we at present entertain concerning man and the universe. Richet's call to investigation is interesting in that at the same time that it encourages the study of spiritualism, it also indicates a continuing avoidance by the scientific community at large. That being said, the publication of the Annals of Psychical Science was far from the first attempt to establish organized and respected scientific inquiry into psychical phenomena. In the 1880s, the Society for Psychical Research, which was founded in 1882 by Dublin physicist W.E. Barrett and spiritualist Edmund Dawson Rogers, had a membership that included, quote, two bishops, nine fellows of the Royal Society, one past and one future Prime Minister, and many writers, including Ruskin and Tennyson among its members. In fact, at the time that quote was published, Charles Richet was the president of the Society, and was also a regular contributor to the journal. Though he was a believer in the facts of spiritualism, he maintained skepticism regarding what exactly the phenomena were. He wrote in 1905 of materializations, Certainly I cannot say in what materialization consists. 
I am only ready to maintain that there is something profoundly mysterious in it which will change from top to bottom our ideas on nature and on life. Riche's profoundly mysterious relationship with spiritual phenomena suggests the other crucial social practice associated with spiritualism, that of religion. Spiritualism was a religious project insofar as its aims were to answer, consolingly, the great questions of life and death with reference to intangible entities. However, as a scientific project, its methods for arriving at statements of truth relied upon, at least ostensibly, observation and evidence as opposed to dogmatic faith. Accordingly, Frederick H. Balfour, a writer and religious scholar, was not surprised at the ridicule directed at spiritualism from religious perspectives. He wrote that the Copernican theory, Darwinism, all were flagrantly contradictory of the book of Genesis, and every one of them was ridiculed, anathematized, rejected with indignant scorn. And now comes a turn of spiritualism. For spiritualists, the perceived end of the process seemingly underway was an evolved human consciousness, more powerful and more aware of universal truths of existence. An 1888 article appearing in the spiritualist publication Light provides an example of spiritualism being linked not only to evolutionary ideas, but also to radical Victorian developments in science, technology, and culture more broadly. The phenomena of spiritualism will have prepared us for revelations of the extraordinary powers possessed by the human soul, extraordinary in our generation, but by succeeding generations, who will exercise them freely and normally, to be looked upon with as little surprise as we contemplate the great achievements in the arts and sciences which our men and women of genius produce in our midst. For spiritualists, just as communication technologies had recently radically altered in capacity and form, through telegraphy, telephony, and phonography, so too had human capacities for communication. These similarities and affinities between spirit communications and the most recent technological innovations were not coincidental. On the contrary, in the minds of spiritualists, they were natural co-developments. The shocking claims of spiritualism were no more shocking to believers than the recent claims of science and technology. Indeed, part of the shock of technological development was the capacity of new machinery to confirm, scientifically, the claims of spiritualists. As another contributor to the two worlds put it, vision and miracle and honest human testimony may be no new things, but the electrometer that measures a psychical disturbance, or the camera that preserves for all time the fugitive lineaments of a ghost, are witnesses to the reality of spirit unheard of before. And moreover, the value of such instrumentalities is as unquestionable as their novelty, inasmuch as their testimony cannot be gainsaid on the score of exaggeration or lying. That quote appeared in an article discussing recent studies in spirit photography. Victorian readers were aware of the many ways that a hoax could be produced in a photographer's lab. However, the idea held by believers was that, while of course some charlatans would seek to profit through hoaxes, that didn't prove that all spirit photographs were fakes. And insofar as some of them were real, in their minds, photography provided amongst the most incontrovertible evidence of the truth of spiritualism. The phonograph, with its parallel capacity to reproduce reality, promised to function in a similar way. Spirit mediums would commonly summon exotic spirits in seances, such as those of Native Americans, who would speak in their original languages. The spiritualist publication Light printed one such example, reporting, the first manifestations which occurred were the loud voices of two Indians, who held a conversation with our friend in their native language. The phonograph promised to not only verify and document such voices, 
but also to allow for those voices and languages to be studied and assessed. Accordingly, in 1892, the two worlds printed an article proposing a phonographic test. If there are any mediums within a reasonable distance of Blackburn who claim to have control speaking foreign languages, languages the mediums themselves do not understand, and are willing for the controls to be tested by linguists who would immediately detect language from gibberish, such mediums are kindly requested to send their names and addresses to me, when arrangements might probably be made to hold a test seance. The claims of spiritualists were consistently put to such seemingly strict and objective tests, which, irrespective of success or failure, served to strengthen the idea of spiritualism by presenting the project as intrinsically rational and empirical. Under such conditions, failures were often rationalized as manifesting from either the impositions of the test or else misunderstandings of the true nature of spiritualist phenomena. In addition to providing evidence for and against the claims of spiritualists, new technologies also function as instruments for communicating with spirits. For example, an 1888 article in Light suggested that a disembodied spirit can communicate with the ordinary embodied spirit by means of an ordinary telegraphic instrument. Two years later, Light printed a similar article confirming the fact of spirit telegraphy before announcing a new method of spirit communication, the typewriter. It stated, The announcement that independent slate writing and telegraphing by spirits were veritable facts created widespread interest among all classes. Now the spirit world has resolved to bring one more agent to aid in the work of transmitting their messages to mortals, and that agent is the typewriter. Beyond this literal level of machinery as the immediate means of spirit communication, technology also suggested forms for spirit communications that seemed entirely organic in nature. For historian Stephen Connor, Victorian spiritualism and Victorian technology were inextricably linked. He writes, The progress of spiritualism, through the 19th century and into the 20th, can be seen in terms of its twinning or ghosting of the developments of communications technology. Following quickly upon important developments in electric telegraphy in the 1830s and 40s, Victorian spiritualism began for many, with the reported spiritual rappings experienced by the Fox sisters in 1848 in their Hydesville, New York home. Stephen Connor, among other historians, points out that the spiritualist technique of decoding rappings using an alphabetic chart, the foremost means of communicating with the dead for many years after the Fox sisters, strongly resembled the concept of electrical telegraphy. He further argues that, coinciding with the development of the telephone and the phonograph, late Victorian spiritualism moved from an emphasis on materializations and visual phenomena in the 1870s towards, and I quote, more indeterminate experiences in which invocation predominated over materializations and the ear over the eye. He adds that the direct voice, the audible voice of a spirit speaking for itself, became the dominant spiritual manifestation as interest lessened in extravagant visual displays. Thus, in 1905, a typical description of a seance described hearing a voice and feeling the touches of a hand, but oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. We'll pick up from this very point in the next episode, so please tune in to that. But for now, goodbye, and thanks for listening.